Hello, this is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true, people. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. You can find Author Magazine at authormagazine.org. I've got a, boy, our new video interview is coming up with Natasha Dion. Man, what a great conversation. What an interesting person. And the way her stories came to her, you're going to want to hear it. I can't do it justice. So check it out. It was talk about inspiration. So that's all over. Going to be there up next month, Natasha Dion, authormagazine.org. And we're funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. You can learn about the PNWA at pnwa.org, their conference. We're starting to put it together now. So you'll want to be a part of that. Uh, I should say for me, I'm going to be doing some uh, a fearless writing, online fearless writing uh, workshop through the Writer's Digest. Um, It'll be in April. I'll put up both of those dates and links on my website. Pretty reasonable price. I can't remember what it is, but it's pretty low. So a couple hours, you get a discount if you do both. Fearless writing, fearless marketing, through Writer's Digest. I'll post it on my website, williamkenauer.com. Right, so today's guest is Philip Gray, who is a wonderful British author who's just published a suspense, a historical suspense novel called Two Stormwood. Great book. We had a great conversation. I do need to uh, explain a little something, which is that I start off the conversation. I, I didn't realize that uh, he had published a whole bunch of books under pseudonyms. It was right there in his bio if I had ever read it, but I don't usually read bios. I just do research, and under Philip Gray, I could only find one book, and that was Two Storm Wood. So that's why I start off, and it seems like I, I don't know anything about this guy, which I kind of don't. Uh, I didn't anyway. But fact that the truth is this is uh, Philip Gray under the pseudonym of Patrick Lynch is the co-author of six thrillers that have sold over a million copies worldwide. He published uh, as Philip Sington, Zoya's Gold, The Einstein Girl, and The Valley of Knowing, and he lives in London. And well, it was a great conversation, and I'm glad I'm sharing it with you now. Enjoy. All right, Philip. Philip. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Good to be here. First of all, so this will be dropping for the podcast, I believe, on the publication date. So yes. in America. When did it pub? Did it publish already in the UK? Yes, it was published in January over here. Oh, not that. Okay. Oh, so yep. all okay. Good, good. Yep. Um, how do you feel? I know you've done a, some, a lot of interesting work in your life. Um, from journalism to documentary filmmaking or involved in documentary filmmaking, but this is your first book, book of any kind, right? No. No, no. no it's my tenth book. Wait, okay. Well, all right. <laughs> my research that. stopped at one website, apparently. Oh, okay. okay. Wow. Was it first? Okay. So talk to me about your writing. So let's back up then. Let's back up. Let's you back have up. to back up a long way. <laughs> okay, all right. So- um, I used to work back in 90. My first book deal was 1992 before the Internet. Right. OK. And, and, I, and... Was part, I was part of a team of two writers and our pen name was Patrick Lynch. And we had some success with our third book, which was called Carriers, which was a success in America. And it got made into a rather, well, I would say an indifferent TV movie. Right. <laughs> it was OK by CBS. Uh, and that went on for we wrote six books together. Uh, until the early part of this century, when both myself and my co-writer went our own separate ways. All right, all right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Stop. 
this is fascinating because I know a couple of people have co-written books. Were these suspense type books also? They were thrillers. Yeah, they were yeah. they were near future medical thrillers. So they were about well, one was about a pandemic. That was Carriers. That was the one about the pandemic. Wow. Which happened at the same time an Ebola ep epidemic was breaking. Right. So that's one right. reason why it got a lot of coverage and was right. rushed out, and that was all great. Um, and we sold it around the world and made money. I left my job as a journalist. Rather rashly, as it turned out. Right, but, but that uh, was the big, that was because you had been a journalist and you'd been sort of around the world as a journalist, you'd you'd right? You'd been kind of in, been a bit of an international guy, but yeah. had your heart, you know, people who write fiction tend mm. to all have always wanted to write fiction usually, but there are, there are yeah, those who I not. Had, I, had, I, well, I left university having, with a history degree, which I soon discovered was ne next, next to useless, <laughs> yeah. as I told your authorial uh, viewers will know, or will know. <laughs> um, and decided that I would then write a novel, even though I hadn't faced, this is, this is my excuse for being so naive, was that it was 1984. Yeah. As I say, this is a good 10 years before anyone had the internet. Yeah. In those days, it was incredibly difficult to get any information about the publishing industry oh. at all. Yeah. All we yeah. had was the artists and writers yearbook in the UK, yeah. which, for example, when it turned to agents, you didn't even know you needed an agent. But if you wanted to find out an agency, you could get this book and it listed them all. And you had the name of the agency, the phone number, the address. If you were lucky, it listed the names of the agents. And that was it. From that- Not what they were taking, not what they were interested in. They might say, oh, yes, no, we were interested, we, we interested in this and let's list all the possible genres there could be. But there was no, you know, today there is so much advice on oh, everything. Yeah, yeah. There was no information on how you write books. There was no, there were no creative writing. This books. was only 84. Yeah, the publishing industry existed. Yes, it had been in existence for a hundred years. In the UK, the first creative writing course was at the University of East Anglia, and I think it basically started then. That's where about what that year. Time. When that would be the eighties, and I think the first really famous, yeah, the first famous graduate was um, Ian McEwan. Uh, oh, who came wow. out of that school, right? Okay. But that was about that time. But apart from that, you know, you I had no idea. I assumed that you learned to write novels by reading them. Right. And well, I, I, and, and basically all I'd written at that point and that point was all I'd read basically were classics like Dickens. So I yeah. sat down to write a historical novel and I did, tried to do as much like Dickens as possible, which wasn't probably the best idea. <laughs> um, but it was, I didn't have anyone to tell me otherwise. And uh, so anyway, that's a long time ago. So I don't know how we got onto that part. But anyway, no, that's, but that's fascinating. I'm always interested in how it begins for people because there's all different journeys to it. Um, yeah. And I didn't understand because I think in America, it was probably a little different because there were already creative writing classes, the Iowa Writers Workshop. I know that oh. in, there was a lot happening in California with writing yeah. programs. It just of course, was... you have all the screen the screenwriting world. Which all is the screenwriting, yeah, yeah. We didn't have any of that in the UK. We wow. had nothing. We basically, you know, we to be honest, I remember starting out, people thought the idea of teaching creative writing was faintly <laughs> laughable. It was like saying, you know, let's teach creative dance i mean I know you do teach that yeah, right. the idea back then was that writers were sort of born not made you know right. you just right. went into the world and you were wise and a good storyteller you just yeah. did it and you'd learned your craft you know you self-taught that was the view and i remember thinking what on earth are they doing lessons do they have essays <laughs> or, you know, and eventually i read a book about you know there are there were books published i still got some of them you know they were called things like the art of writing and they were right, yeah. party party. They were sort of becoming a writer. This is the only one someone gave me this one. Me, what's really. that? 
This is a real classic. Becoming a oh, writer okay. by Dorothea Brand. When was that published? Uh, and it looked like the 80s. October 1984, so I guess yeah. 88. And she was a sort of grand old lady with a critic at work on himself. Now, we will suppose you have a kind of rough preliminary idea of yourself as a writer. It was always sort of right, you know, right. life guidance. It wasn't like, you know, how do you do a plot structure? You know, right. How do you establish a character? How do you get right. people to care about right. your characters? All that nuts and bolts stuff. It just wasn't available. It didn't even occur to people that they ought to go and look it up. It was just assuming that you just read great books and it would sort of morph into you somehow through this magic process. You know, right. Dickens didn't go to a writing school and neither did <laughs> Shakespeare did. And so how did you learn it? Did you just learn? Well, I mean, I go tell you, I myself didn't go to school for it. I just right. did it and did it and did it and did it and did it. Um, yeah, but, exactly. but there were plenty of schools I could have gone to, but I just, yeah. for my own reasons, chose not to. Um, well, exactly. Well, I, was like, I think probably without, you know, being too personal, you're probably just old enough for that to have been a way to do it. And yeah. and, and I, and I was, like you, I never been to a class. I have taught a couple of classes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but having no experience whatsoever, except what I learned myself. But I did finally get around to reading a proper uh, screenwriting course book. Not screenwriting, sorry, a novel writing yeah. book. It was American. And it was Who wrote both, it? Um, I've got it, actually. I think it's the best one. I have read a few now, or flipped through them at least. This is the only one I read cover to cover, and I was really impressed. And I thought it was genuinely useful, even though I, by the time I read it, I'd written about eight novels or six novels. Really? I thought, he don't, yeah, he's, he knows what he's talking about. I, I'll, I will hold it up to you. All right. Uh, for, those are, for those, for our listeners, Philip is at this moment searching his his bookshelf, which is shelf right there, his writing shelf. Writing. Oh, he's going to find it now. I'm going to find it now. I'm yeah, there was a book. I, the first writing book I ever read was John Gardner's book on writing. I haven't got that one. Yeah, I read it in the 80s. It was like 86 when I got it. So it must have been, and he was a big writing instructor. Uh, there was just a whole bunch of, I think, writing programs at the collegiate yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, uh, the only thing, I must have lent it to someone, but I know oh, it, well. was, it was by a guy called Sexton. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. And, it, and he, I think he has a course and it was based upon his course. All right. So and you I took that and it, and it, it, well, but you'd already written some books at that point. Yes. It's what it was called, um, oh God, something fairly ordinary, like, um, you know, structures of writing or something. Yeah. Why don't I have it anymore? It's annoying because I actually, that's quite a useful book. Anyway, but, I thought that was, I thought the, the key thing about character and how you, get people on side with the character it was very well done and I thought this is actually these courses aren't silly because my first my first instinctive reaction was this is just fleecing people who want to be writers you know right. there's lots of people sure. out there who will fleece anyone who wants to be a writer um, I have a theory though but I have a theory this is this is my approach to teaching writing because I teach it I teach a lot of things but what I, my theory is I don't know how many of these people I teach are going to actually publish their books. I don't know because there are a lot of them experimenting, but I do believe this down to my bones, Philip. I'd be curious to hear what you say, that there is something about the creative process of facing a blank page and saying, what do I want on it? What without anything to react to nothing to respond to just having to go within yourself for the creative that is valuable, whether you ever write or not, that there is something about writing that can help you in the rest of your life, whether you ever finish novels. What do you think? I think that? I would probably be a basket case if I hadn't been a writer, because ah. I have definitely exercised a lot of demons. And, it, I, and I think that the very active, as you say, the very act of creating something out of nothing um, is very cathartic, even if the stuff is rubbish. It's still, it's still, you know, it is, a, I think it is good psycho, psychologically. I and, think so too. 
to go back to your original question, did I always want to be a writer, which is how he started? Yes, yeah. Stuff. Was that always the plan? Uh, Novel, I mean, fiction writer, because there's I all had, different I kinds of writers. Absolutely clueless. I didn't know how to, what to do. I didn't, couldn't get a job. Right. So I, I had an idea for a book, which wasn't a particularly good idea. I had it actually when I had a case of pleurisy in Peru and was laid out with a wow. temperature of 100 and something. So wow. My fevered brow. I'd just been reading Nabokov, which is always a terrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> oh, God, with a fever. <laughs> yes, I read, and I thought, I've got an idea. And I, and I didn't do anything about it for about a year and a half. But then I thought, well, maybe I should, I, I can't think of anything else to do. The other thing was, when I was at university, this is ancient history, but, but I had done a lot of collaborative stuff like theatre. Yeah. And the problem was that because I was at a university which didn't have a great pool of great acting talent, and I was right. a terrible director anyway, um, <laughs> I always felt that what I wanted to do was being filtered through so many compromises that in the end it was just an exercise in stopping the whole thing from falling apart. So I thought egotistically, I will do something creative that only relies on me. Right. Not, of course, recognising that I was completely incompetent, which I was. Oh. But <laughs> like, like you say, I wrote a 400-page first draft, and then I rewrote another 400 pages trying wow. to do it. I was halfway the third draft when I gave up, met my co-writer, started something else. And I think by the time we wrote the third book together, we were beginning to get the hang of it. So wow. So to- <laughs> that's an interesting thing. So you chose to write with somebody else. That's... Um... I mean, I don't want to get too deep into it because uh, you've moved on to writing independently, but you must have, I mean, there must have been something about it. I, and I'm going to guess, if I had to guess in my, put on my psychologist's hat now, my writer's psychologist's hat, having yeah. a co-writer helped your ego simmer down a little bit because you had to work with someone. You had to be willing to take feedback and criticism and, and it, you couldn't lay claim to the work completely on your own. Is that yeah, I fair think, to say? I think that was certainly part of it. Yes. I don't, I don't think I was particularly egotistical, actually. I was actually, you know, having written a very long book twice and it being no good, my confidence right. was quite low. Oh, the only oh. thing that came out of that was my, my co-writer read one chapter that I had written, which I, for some reason, had printed out separately. And he looked at it and he showed, a, showed me a book that he'd written, which I read about 10 pages of. And I thought, well, it's, you know, it's quite well written, but I have no idea what's going on. Right. Um, <laughs> he said that, he said that it's, it, the thing about this is it shows that you're serious. You, you, at the very least, you've written two 400-page drafts. Right. Well, that's Someone true. Someone think that unless they're serious. So I thought, yeah, and he's written a book. It may be terrible, but he's, but he's done it. So why not? And he had an idea that I thought was workable. And we worked it together. And the great thing about it, and I think the reason the collaboration worked, and it, we stayed together for about 10 years working together, even though he was in different countries from me most of the time. Wow. Uh, yes, pre-internet. We pre-internet. Jesus. It, it, well, at the beginning, it was pre-internet. By the time we began a few years, the internet had arrived. Most right. of it, everything could go by email. <laughs> but until then, it was in the post, literally. Wow. Um, yeah, very old. Very old school. But uh, the thing about it was that really, it did teach me the value of collaboration. But I have collaborated since then with a few other people and nothing has been as successful. And the key to it was, just like you say, we made a little rule um, when we were first starting to do this. He said that it was my, my, my friend who sort of formulated it. And he said, we should do it that when we write separately, because we always wrote different parts you know, initially. Uh, when you write what you write, you write whatever you like. But as soon as you share it to the other guy, it doesn't become your bit and my bit. It becomes our bit. Right. Okay? So right. The moment you finish it and say, right, I've done this, here it is, this is the chapter, whatever it is, then it's ours. Yeah. Okay? And, yeah. And, and, that, and then that really worked. And, and we did everything down the middle. 
You know, we never had arguments about money or who'd done more work or whose wow. ideas were being jettisoned. We never had a single creative argument in 10 years. And that was because, as you say, ego at the door. And I think that has stood me in good stead because going forward from there on my own, you know, I've, I've, had, I've done a lot of work which needed a lot of changing and improvement. Right. And if I hadn't been prepared to listen to people, which I do a lot, um, I, think, I, I think I would have not published anything. Wow. That's a great, well, you know, I think about the, you know, the, I say the ego that you, the ego can affect you in a lot of ways as a writer. You can just, it can get you getting a little self-conscious. You can start choosing words just because of the awareness of what the reader will, like, there's a lot of ways you really want to just get out of the way and simmer down and don't think about it. And it seems like that would be very helpful. Just. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I did have, I did have a sort of nightmare screenwriting experience with another writer. Um, he wasn't really a writer, but you know, the screenwriting is a much more normally a collaborative yeah, medium. Yeah, lots yeah. of teams of writers who work on screenplay. But that was a nightmare because he, he, we couldn't get out of this sort of my bit, your bit thing. It became a tug of war. Uh, and I, and it wasn't me, but it was obvious that that's how he saw it. And it, it became impossible to work with him because yeah. he couldn't let go of, you know, if I did that, I don't want to change it all the time. So it became impossible. So it's not, it doesn't always work like that. But yeah. when it does, um, I think that's that's a very useful way to do it. The other thing about ego, by the way, I did think, you know, I didn't think about what I was going to say tonight, but I thought I'm bound to get asked, well, maybe I wouldn't be because yours is too interesting, but the conventional <laughs> question you often get asked is what advice do you give? And of course, you know, where do you start? But one thing I thought that isn't said enough uh, when you're actually in the process of writing, I'm not talking about plotting or all right. the first stuff, but just when you're sitting down in front of the computer to write, or indeed a pen and paper, if you're that way inclined. Um, like you say about ego, it's a bit like that. I might say the simplest advice is don't try to be clever. That's the thing. I, I read good, you know, books that are great. They're published books. I get sent them quite often. You know, they've got a lot going for them, interesting settings, good stories. The only thing that jars with me is sometimes, not all the time, but a lot of time, you can see that the writer is trying really hard. That's right. Sometimes they're trying to be literary. Yes. Sometimes they're trying to be very lyrical. Sometimes yep. they're trying to be witty. And sometimes they are witty. But after a while, it starts to get a bit grating. You realize there is a style here that's been adopted. Often it's called a voice. Yeah, you but know, the, the voice becomes self conscious because it's clearly an affectation yep. that is put in there to work. And the poor writer is a slave to this thing because they think this is my legitimacy, this is my ticket. I've got to make this voice. Yeah, I, you know what's so funny yeah. about that, Philip, is that I was a bit when I was a younger writer, I got a bit. I, I, I like certain stylistic writers, like Vladimir yeah. Nabokov and all that, and I was a little voice conscious, and I had yeah, skill. Yeah. And it wasn't until I stopped caring, and I got so interested in my material of, of, because I shifted, and I yeah, just yeah. wanted to be accurate and to be yeah. honest. That suddenly suddenly people started talking about my voice. I was like, what do you, I don't even know what, I don't even know what that is, but oh, but I did yeah. have a voice. It was true, but I wasn't, I was totally unconscious about it. And I thought, ah, that's, that's it. I think the key to it is if, you, if you're true to your material yeah. and you just worry about communicating what you want to say and your ideas, the voice will come naturally. That's right. It's, it's a problem that takes care of itself. Yes. A lot of problems in publishing and writing that don't, but that's what it does. <laughs> so all you have to do is like what you and I have done is keep writing, keep thinking about stories, keep thinking about what you want to do. The writing will take care of itself. It absolutely will. And you can yeah. take anybody who's the most 
doesn't matter who you are, what your education level is, if you start writing, after a while, your writing will just get better. And the thing that will hold you up is when you decide, oh, this doesn't read in a writerly way. That's right. That's right. That's going to hold you up. You'll take 10 times longer to write everything, which means you'll get 10 times less practice. That's absolutely correct. Well, so I, I really, so this is Two Storm Wood. This is the most recent. I'm showing it now for this case. And it's such a great book. And you got to you got to flex your historian's muscles a little bit in this. It, it takes place in, uh, in well, during and sort of post-World War One. I, yeah. I will tell you, I will tell you. So I don't write fiction anymore. I did for a while. And I write personal essay, which means I don't have to fortunately re research anything. I just, I'm researching as we speak because well, I'm living, right? enough not to worry. <laughs> There's a lot I could say about this book that I like. But I'm going to start with something. It's so it's so prosaic, but I am always floored by people who can who do the level of research you clearly did, and that it flows out so normally that it feels like it was written sort of contemporaneously. So, so talk to me about that because you have to both like telling a story, but you have to like go learning all that crap. And I, but this, because there's so many freaking details that you have to put in, that you have to put in that you that are not obvious to the 21st century person, right? Right. right? right. Just talk to me a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Well, I'm, I'm unfortunately not blessed with a great memory. I wish I was. <laughs> you know, some people, um, my brother, for example, is a filmmaker. He has a memory like a steel trap. Once you tell him something, he never forgets it. So when he reads, does his, does his research for his films, you know, the documentary film, yeah. he only has to read everything once. And it's all That's in there. It. I, I, I'm forgetting stuff all the time. So <laughs> I have to, uh, so I have to, I have to be very ruthless in my research. And that means that I, I do reading to start with, just to get the feel of the period and that sort right. of thing. And then I just think about the story. And okay. I don't worry about whether things could happen too much. And then I then when it comes to the detail, I know I know what I need to know. I make a little shopping I list. see, right. I need right. to know about that, 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 that. And there's right. going to be stuff in the particular book I did, Two Storm Wood, I did want to be very, it was easy to be accurate, but I wanted to be very accurate because um, I, I wanted to follow a particular unit, and that was my grandfather's division. Right. And he had left lots of records and books and maps and all kinds of stuff. To, so I didn't have to keep going to the museums. Uh, the Imperial right. War Museum is the big one in London. I didn't have to keep going there. I did go a few times, but I didn't have to keep going back. And I just basically, for the purposes of the background, I simply used that skeleton biography, if you like, of that particular division in the war. If ever I wanted to know where somebody was or a unit was, I would just look at that. Right. But that was that was just convenience. But I think um, it, it isn't, I think you can, you know, as people say this a lot, you don't want to bog yourself down. You just want to become conversant with the world that you're in. I do read a lot of uh, historical fiction and I think it's oh, actually do. quite lazy. Well, I, it's not my favourite necessarily, right. but I sometimes do get impatient with it. But it isn't so much because someone's, you know, made an, a simple rudimentary error of fact. That happens all the time. And I'm sure I've made some into the world. I was lucky enough to get a couple of readers on Twitter who were military men and they read it and a couple of times they threw me up and said, you know, they wouldn't say that. They right, would say right, that. right, right. And they were, you know, so I, I hope I got most of it right. But the key thing is the idiom of the time. That's the really important thing. Yeah. That you don't, that, and, the, and there's an easy way to do that. You've just got to read uh, literature or non, you know, factual or fictional from that time. And if right. you absorb yourself in that language, you will just exude it naturally. Right. You don't have to. Oh, right. sorry. That's my phone. Oh, no reason okay. going off. I apologize for that. Um, right. you know, it, it will, it will, it will, it will, it will be fine. So, um, 
I, I'm a stickler for, for things being authentic sounding, but you know, you don't have to worry too much whether you well, put the train station in the right place or yeah. You know. But it really was. It was wonderful. And also, I what I liked about it um, is it's a thriller. Uh, that's where it's shelved. And thrillers are interesting as a genre. And some of I, as I was reading this, and I was thinking about the thriller genre. I pictured tra a train ride, and some thrillers are just that train gets going and it's going fast, yeah. and the scenery. And the towns you go by are just, they're just flying by because we're getting, and that's okay. Like sometimes that's what it is. But this one, it takes its, it allows you to see the scenery and the, and taste the tea and, and which is an interesting, and, and which I thought was, an, was a, an, a skillful choice on your part because you also had to keep it moving. Like yeah. you can't, like I've read books where they stop to describe the room. I'm like, please, no, God, the story's moving. Not now, not now, yeah. man. But uh, I, so I really, I, my hat's off to you, but maybe talk about balancing those two elements. Well, I think in this case, um, and I, I'm, I'm pleased to say that some uh, readers have said that the setting is almost a character in itself. Yeah, yeah, and it feels like that. That's something of what I was trying to do. So I'm not describing the setting for the sake of just giving you information or for a bit of atmosphere, although it is quite an atmospheric setting. Right. Um, it's because I wanted you to feel that sense of being haunted uh, right. by this extraordinary place. You know, it's um, the battlefields of the Western Front, 400 miles, 20,000 miles of trenches, tunnels, dugouts, explosives in tunnels, millions of unexploded ordnance. Right. And as far as the British Army alone was concerned, 450,000 missing men and at least you imagine uh, 450,000 missing, missing. Okay? And, and imagine as in the west of France and the same number buried in in battlefield graves a lot of which were, net, were lost because they were shelled and the markers right. were gone but all had to be found and reburied so a reburial effort of 400,000 people and searching for nearly half a million more and that's just the British so there's another two million missing from the other belligerents on the rest of the front. It was a charnel house and an incredibly dangerous one. And this is in 1919. The population yeah. of the world was not what it is now. No, Think of, like, yeah. as percentage-wise, that was quite a chunk. Oh, no. I mean, for the, for the British, it was the most costly war of all. That's why it's still remembered here. Right. Um, I mean, it was quite costly for the Americans. They were yeah, but not. But the British about, really just, Jesus. And they thought it was going to be million, over in a couple months when they million. started it. Yeah, they, they lost nearly a million men. Um, in the course of the war, the French lost two million, nearly, two, and the Germans lost two million. Um, so were, for huge losses, yes. Um, in a very small area, it wasn't yeah. just like all over the world. It was on the Western Front mostly. Uh, there are other yeah. fronts too: the Italian Front, the Middle East, and so forth. But the main one was the Western Front. Um, yeah. So I want because that was the reason I started the book. I thought this extraordinary place. We think of the battles, and we think of the aftermath, where now, nowadays it's there are hundreds, literally hundreds, of very neat cemeteries with it all looked after and they're beautifully kept and everything um but from one to the other was a very very difficult and agonizing process and uh i just thought that was an incredible setting to put characters in there surrounded by this this extraordinary wasteland of death and ruin um i thought it could, there couldn't be a creepier setting i mean there's never been a more haunted place than the song you know there are a million undead people lying around you a million that's a that's, large city that's okay, a, so. it is and so yeah. so think about this listeners for those of you who write so he 
the point of the set of detailing the setting was there was a point, a narrative point to it. It wasn't just to show off that he could describe scenes, which he could do, but no, it had a purpose to it. I always think that it's, it's like experimentation. Why are you experimenting? What purposes it serve other than showing that you can write a page long sentence or whatever it is. Stonewood couldn't have been written anywhere else. Right. It had to be there. Right. And so we had to know what it was like. We had to see it. You could have written another story about missile missing in action on a different battlefield. You could have done it. But it, it the, the journey that the main characters go through, in particular, Amy Vanek, the woman who afterwards has been in England all through the war, she's never seen the front. She goes and sees the aftermath and it's the change she begins to understand what it is that her beloved has gone through. Right. And you have to be there and see it. And That's feel right. It, and smell it to know how horrible it is. So when you choose a setting for a book, sometimes, you know, uh, I'm just finishing a book now where the setting is, isn't very important. And so, uh, you know, right. spend as little time on it as possible. That's if right. It's not important. Don't bother to go into it. You right. know, right. it's there, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but if you're going to check, write a story where you want the setting to play a role, then choose it very carefully and make sure it supports your story. So if it's a story about, I'm just making up rubbish now, but if no, it's a no. story about someone who is, very, you know, for one reason or another, feels very isolated or very alone, or you want them to be very alone, put it in a lonely place. Let's feel it. You know, so you can you do a little bit of naturalistic fallacy. You can make the location feed into your feelings about the characters. Absolutely. You know? You don't have to. I mean, obviously, you could be lonely in the crowd. You can, you can absolutely. But if you want, you can help yourself by describing a very lonely place. So go to one, you know, go to some god-awful place that no one goes to <laughs> and be alone there and just let it sink into you for a while. Right. Think, like, what would I like if I lived here? How would I feel? How would I react to people? How would I, you know, think about my life? And, that, and then the setting will become part of the story. As you said, I think it's excellent. Now I'm going to help you sell some books. Listen, people, those of you, this is y'all can buy this book. It's a great book. If you like literature, if you like suspense, it's good. But you know how it is you have trouble buying something for your husband or your boyfriend? This is it. You get them for this. This is it. This is a good book. Women buy most books, but sometimes we got to buy a present and it's hard. And this is a good one. This is a good one. So I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Bill's seal of approval. Uh, okay, Phil. Philip, you, you go by Philip or Phil? Well, if it's final, Phil, I'm easy either way. Okay. Well, listen, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm not quite done with you. However, Good. what I'd like you to do is uh, I want you to think back of all the writing that you've now told me you've done that I've learned uh, late to the game. But you think about all the writing you've done mm -hmm. and finish this sentence. If writing has taught you anything. It's taught you what? That you don't get anything worthwhile without working your butt off. Oh, you you and you're willing to do that well you've got to be, put it this way i i would say you've got to be determined to keep going yeah that's it but make the most useful things in life you get when you've just kept going you know you, you you're going to get knocks in the writing game i've had a lot everyone does yeah you've got to be prepared to be not flat on your ass and and you know it's always going to hurt you're never going to think, oh, it doesn't matter. It's always going to hurt. It's always going to matter. But you just got to get up off the mat and get on with it. And in the end, you know, you'll get some results. You may not end up with you know, Stephen King or whatever, but you'll get somewhere and it'll be worthwhile. I think that's true of most walks of life, don't you? That, you know, I agree if it becomes too easy, it's just 
It's not valuable. I had to pull myself off the mat many, 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 many well, times. You have my respect, sir. <laughs> I assure you. Thank you, Phil. This has been great. Okay. Thanks very much, Phil. Yeah, perseverance, sticking with it, that just that just comes up a lot. Show up and do the work. And a lot of the other stuff we worry about will take care of itself. Man, I can't hear that often enough. It's true, people. It is. I want to thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. Thank you, as always. And to all of you out there, stick with it. Just stick with it. Just stay with it. Just show up. Go find something you love to do and do it again and again and again. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>